Good morning, church. Good morning. Pastor Hez, one of the elders here. We're glad that you're with us. Um, and I, I pray that you would receive this morning from this word. We're, we're jumping back in our series in the book of Matthew. Uh, Pastor Clint has been preaching the majority of this book, and now here am I. Amen, church. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for a time of celebrating you. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to worship a holy God and to lift you up uh, this morning. I pray that even as we continue uh, through the preaching of your word, that this will be a, a time of celebration and worship as your word washes us uh, and, 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 and ministers to our hearts and our minds. I pray that you will do this, Lord, by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. One of the greatest memories as a child for me growing up was waking up Saturday morning, making a big bowl of cereal and watching Saturday morning cartoons. I can remember church, me and my brother, getting up early, sitting in front of the TV with great expectation, waiting to see what would happen this week. And we loved it because back then, children, Cartoons had this way of capturing your attention and imagination. But they also, church, had this way of tapping into the realities of life as they dealt with things like good and evil, love and betrayal, and death and the afterlife. Two specific cartoons stick out in my mind as, as I thought about this, and one was Looney Tunes and the other was Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Though these wasn't my favorite cartoons, please hear me. <laughs> but the reason why both of these came to my mind in this moment, because both of those cartoons had an interesting way of dealing with death and eternity. Though the characters never seemed to truly die, they would have these moments when one would get blown up or something like that. And almost every time you would watch as their spirits floats up to the sky and they would rest on a cloud with harp in hand and angel wings on their back. Hmm. And Tom and Jerry Church isn't the only ones that shared this view of eternity. But there has also been churches and pastors who have led their congregations to believe in this idea. But believe it or not, church, this idea is not what's in the Bible. And though we many times believe that we have to sort of guess what eternity will be like, the Bible actually gives us a good understanding of what eternity will be like. As a matter of fact, church, 
The majority of Jesus' ministry was spent teaching about what life would be like in his kingdom. Jesus, through parables and illustrations throughout the gospel, paints this great picture for us of what eternity will be like. He tells us what kind of people will be in his eternal kingdom. And he tells us how they will live and how they will function as they live out his kingdom way. A way, church, that is just and true. One that is holy and righteous. A way that he he calls for his disciples to follow him in even here on earth as they prepare for life in his eternal kingdom. And he encourages them, church, to practice this kingdom way, not only for themselves, but so that they might display his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom here on earth. So that in the same way that he taught and modeled this way to them, they would teach and model this way to others, inviting them to follow our great Lord and King as we have now become part of his kingdom community. But for many of us, uh, uh, we soon learn, church, that this kingdom way is a way that is much different from our ways here on earth. In fact, many times, His kingdom way is the very opposite of our earthly ways. And that is what we see in this parable church that we will be in today. As Jesus shares with his disciples a parable that contains a key principle of kingdom life. And as we jump into this parable today in Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16... You should know first that this parable is a a continuation of the conversation that we learned about last time we were in Matthew. As Pastor Clint told us about this encounter with with Jesus and the, the rich young ruler, where we learned that this young man proposed a question to Jesus about what one must do to have eternal life. A question that Pastor Clint said, presuppose that there is something that we can do in and of ourselves to gain it. Believing, church, that our works and our attaining of possessions are enough to gain us entry into God's eternal kingdom. And so this young man comes to Jesus believing that he has done enough. He believed that Jesus would validate his his moral righteousness and, and his keeping of the law. But instead, he leaves this encounter sorrowful as Jesus challenges his self righteous way. Jesus exposes church the the truth of his heart and reveals to him his unrighteousness by showing him his, his reliance on worldly gain. Jesus exposes how he has made an idol of his possessions and his works. He has made an idol church of worldly pursuits and these things for him have become a stumbling block 
his worldview and his worldly standards have blinded him to the truth of his sinfulness. And though he presents himself, church, as righteous and in all his ways, Jesus quickly shows him the unrighteousness deep within. And as his disciples watched this interaction, it says that they were greatly astonished, responding by saying, who then, Jesus, can be saved? In other words, if this man who has, has done all these things and have, have gained all these things, if he can't get in, then who can? How is this possible for anyone to have eternal life? A question that Jesus answers to, by saying to them in chapter 19, verse 26, with this, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus in this moment, church, is trying to teach his disciples the truth about entry into his eternal kingdom. That being that entry can only come from God granting it to us, not by our own merit or works, for it is only by and through him that we can be made perfect. And there is nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to fulfill his perfect requirement. This kingdom truth turns these disciples' world upside down. And it leaves them confused. And it also leads Peter, who thinks he's got it, to ask this question. A question that quickly becomes the basis For Jesus teaching this parable to us in Matthew 21 through 16. After hearing Jesus' encounter with this young man, church, where he was not willing to give up his possessions to follow Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter, after Hearing Jesus' challenge to this young man, essentially asked the same question that the young man asked. Except he asked, believing that because he was, he was willing to leave everything, that, that Jesus would validate his righteousness. He believes, church, that he has fulfilled the requirement for entry into Jesus' kingdom. He compares himself to this young man and he believes that his works are more worthy than his and are more deserving of eternal life. But instead of Jesus just validating Peter's works, the question prompts Jesus to do two things. The first thing he does, church, is he gives a promise. He explains to them, That those who follow him will, in in return, receive an inheritance that is a hundredfold. And he also promises that those who truly follow him will inherit eternal life. And though this promise is very true, Jesus follows this promise, church, with a parable. 
He wants to help them to further understand his point as, he, he prom, as his promise is not based on their ability to give up everything, but his promise is based only on God's grace. As it is only by God's grace that anyone, church, can truly follow him. And so our main point for this morning, church, and there's only one, is simply that eternal life can never be gained by our works, but only by God's grace alone. But before we jump into this parable, church, I think it would be good to, to first look a little deeper into the basis of Peter's statement and question as I believe that Peter's question is one that had we been there before Jesus, many of us, especially uh, uh, those who are believers, would have asked. And this is a question that is, is, is a question that we should not be surprised that Peter asks, especially as one who grew up living in Jewish culture a culture church that was heavily focused and centered around one's morality and works, a culture that was shaped around tradition and law where their law was the standard and one's working towards that standard made them righteous, a culture that was ingrained in Peter and the rest of the disciples since they were kids. They have grown up learning to believe in this worldview and it's this worldview that, that Peter is, is now viewing God's eternal kingdom through. And he also expects that Jesus, who is also Jewish, and not only Jewish, but who is a Jewish teacher, he expects him as well to hold and to have the same view. But instead of validating this way, church, Instead of validating this worldview, Jesus steps into the world of these disciples and he turns their culture and their worldview upside down. And though this, Jesus, uh, this Jewish culture and worldview might feel foreign to us, church, it's a worldview that many of us, too, have grown up with as well. Many of us, church, have grown up believing that our good deeds are what make us good. And we have believed that, that because they make us good, it also makes us better with God. And we believe that our good works are more deserving of God's favor. And we apply this view to every area of our lives. And we therefore view situations and circumstances believing that these are a result of God's favor and disfavor. We even see backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses as a result of our works, believing that because of our works, we are more deserving of a better life. And many times we believe that those who are of lower status are less deserving because they have done less. And we therefore ascribe to them less worth. Even as believers, many of us apply this worldview to our lives 
in the church believing that our religiousness or, or our, our practice of spiritual things makes us more righteous and holy. Jesus steps into all of this mud, church, and he steps on our toes, letting us know that though we have come to know this way, this is not the way of his kingdom. And he exposes the flaws in this way as he shows us that this this merit-based pursuit of righteousness is not that much different from the pursuit of worldly gain. As both pursuits has one's self at the center of it. A self-centered mindset and worldview that throughout history has developed cultures and systems that leads to this sort of hierarchical way of living, church. A way of living where one person or, or one group of people develops a criteria that they use to ascribe worth. Criteria that then becomes the basis for systems and laws, systems and laws that becomes the basis for merit, merit that we use to base one's dignity and value. I don't know if you're following me. And there will always be someone at the top and someone at the bottom. And this is what is going on, church, in Peter's time and culture as Peter and the Jews find themselves in this merit-based society. It's in this society, church, that they find themselves as Jews under the rule of Rome. And even as they are under the authority and rule of Rome, they as Jews see themselves as greater than Gentiles ascribing to the Gentiles less value. In fact, they view the Gentiles' church as being no better than dogs. And they therefore regard them as unworthy. And even amongst the Jews and the Gentiles are those who have been cast out and cast aside. Those who are considered the least. Those who are lepers and invalids. Those who are poor and who are beggars. Those who can't fend for themselves or provide for themselves. Many couldn't even live amongst the people, but had to live in communities outside of the larger community. This is the type of system and culture that this worldview creates. And this is what we have seen throughout history. This self-centered pursuit of gain is the same thing that was central to slavery in our day, church. It's central to the caste systems that are in India. It's central to the, the, the hierarchical systems that are in China, to the worldview in Russia and Europe, to the tribal wars that continue in Africa. And it's what we see presently, church, here in America. Have you ever thought about how we classify people in this great nation as those who are in the higher class and those who are in the lower class? And we ascribe to those who are in that lower class many times, church, less value. 
while giving great dignity, value, and respect to those in the upper echelon of our world. We look down on those who are lower, and many times we treat them, church, as less than human. This is the way, church, that has been ingrained in Peter and in us. And we, along with Peter, many times take this mindset and this way, and we try to apply that way to Jesus' eternal kingdom. And Jesus gives us this great parable to let us know that this way that we have learned is not a way that we are truly called to. It is not the way of the eternal kingdom. But instead, through this great parable, we learn that Jesus prescribes a better way, a true way. As he begins this parable, he wants us to know what must be central to this true way by beginning with the most central figure of the story. And so here we are to the scripture. I know you was waiting. <laughs> and he says in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with, with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Jesus begins to give us, church, a glimpse of this new way by first letting us know who should be central in the story. He uses this analogy of, of, the, of a master or a owner of a house to let us know that in, in his kingdom, church, there is one who has all authority. One who has all control and has all power, who owns everything, and everything is centered around him. We also learn, church, that this master has a task, a task that requires workers. Therefore, this master goes out into the marketplace, it says, early in the morning to find workers who will help him to complete this task. Now, this parable doesn't go into uh, details about this, but one thing that I find interesting, church, about this master is the fact that he goes out into the marketplace. This is a master church who owns a vineyard that is big enough for him to go out all day to find workers to tend to it. And yet he himself is the one who is going out to find the workers. You would think that a master of such a vineyard would be one who has great wealth. And because he has great wealth, he would probably send someone else to go out and find workers. But instead, church, he himself is the one who goes out to find these workers. I believe Jesus wants us to know that in the kingdom of heaven, church, the master of, of his kingdom is one who comes to us rather than us going to him. In fact, church, it says that he went out early in the morning to find these workers, meaning that this task that he has is urgent to him, church, as he wants to make sure that none of his harvest is lost. And so he goes out, church, early in the morning, and he, he finds labors, and it says that he agreed with the labors for a wage. 
he agrees to give them a denarius or, or a day's worth of pay. And, and he sends them into the vineyard. Now, as Jesus tells us of this group of workers, he leaves us with a, a few clues about them, church. We can first speculate that these workers are those who looked apart. There are those who have gotten up early and, and they're there in the, in the marketplace and they're ready and willing to work. They are probably confident in themselves and their work and we, we can probably guess that they have some sort of knowledge about their work because it says that they agreed to a certain pay. It almost sounds as if they, they haggled with this master a little bit or even demanded a certain amount. It sounds like they might have felt like they were entitled to a certain amount. I'm sure they're proud of themselves as they were the first chosen out of all the workers, believing that they were more worthy than the others who were not chosen. The first group seems to share church in the same sort of mindset that we see in Peter as he asks Jesus the question and statement. An attitude sort of of entitlement. Peter also seems to be bargaining with Jesus for some type of reward, feeling as if he is owed or deserved a certain wage because of what he has been willing to give up, because of what he has been willing to do. He has earned this, this way into Jesus' kingdom. He has entirely missed the fact, church, that, that Jesus says that the standard of entry is perfection and that with man this is impossible. His entitled view of himself gives him a skewed perception of God's standard and leaves him blind even to his own sinfulness and unrighteousness. It leads him to see his life only through what he has done well, forgetting all the things that he constantly falls short in. But notice that these workers, uh, though they have this sort of mindset of entitlement, the master doesn't not hire them. But instead, even knowing this about the men, it says he agrees to a certain wage and he invites them in anyway. And he continues on, church, with this, this task of gathering workers. It says that he goes back about 9 o'clock. And, and this time we get a different detail about the workers, church. It says they're standing idle. This word idle means doing nothing or, or looking useless. In other words, these workers probably don't look as much the part as the first workers. We also notice that there is no coming to an agreement. But instead, the master tells them that he will give them what is right. Meaning, he will give them what is just or fair. There's no haggling for what they deserve, but there is contentment with receiving what the master thinks is fair. As it says that they too go into this vineyard. And then he goes back at noon. And then back at three. 
And then around 5 o'clock, he goes out one more time. And it said that he found others standing idle. And he says to them in verse 6, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. Now let's think about this church, because I, I want you guys to get this picture. These men were standing in the marketplace all day long waiting for someone to hire them. This means they have been looked over all day. Meaning these are probably the most undesirable looking workers, which is why no one has hired them all day. They also seem to be the most desperate. Though no one has hired them, they waited there all day, church. I don't know about you, but if this was me, I would have probably given up around lunchtime. And I definitely would have lost any hope of being hired by three. But yet it's five in the afternoon. It's time for the workday to be over. And yet these workers are still there in the marketplace. They have been there helpless and desperate, waiting for just a glimmer of hope and opportunity. For the day has gone and there is but one hour left. And yet... A glimmer of hope shows up. The master approaches them. And without even discussion of pay, he tells them to go in the vineyard. With no question asked, they go. And about an hour later, the master calls the supervisor and he tells him to give the wages to the laborers. And as he pays them, he begins with those who came last. That being those who have only worked one hour. And it says that he gives them a denarius or a full day's wage. Though they only worked one hour. And so this first group is watching this church. They're excited because they agreed to a denarius as well, and they worked the whole day. So if they got one, then I know we at least getting two. <laughs> and so they're there, and they get to the front of the line to get their pay. And to their surprise, church, they get a denarius. They get the same amount as those who came last. They received exactly what they agreed to. And as they received it, it says they grumbled at the master. Their reason for grumbling was not because they didn't receive what they agreed to. But because they felt more deserving than those who came after them. And in their mindset. In this merit-based system, they expected to get more, church, because they felt as though they were worth more. They have been watching all the other workers come in, and they watched this last group come in and work for just one hour. And now they watched as they got the same reward. And this caused frustration and discontentment that begins to brew inside of them 
against the master. And look at what they say to him in verse 12. They don't say, you're not giving us what you, you agreed to pay. They say, you have made them equal to us. Church, the crumbling isn't even about pay. But the true matter is the fact that the master made those useless workers equal to them who were there early in the morning and who have been working all day. How could he, church? How could he treat them this way? It's so unfair. And yet, you treat these men who have done nothing as if they are equal to us. And then this grumbling in their hearts and minds quickly not only turns into grumbling, but it turns into accusations as they accuse the master of being unjust. They don't even know what the master has agreed with the other workers for. They don't know if they agreed to work one hour and come tomorrow. They don't know if they worked yesterday and then came in for one hour. All they know is what they saw, and because of what they perceived, they called the master unjust. They accuse him of not dealing fairly with them. And this is what this mindset, church, of entitlement leads to. Those who feel as if God owes them. Those claiming things that he never promised putting pressure so-called on God in his name and calling him to give them what they deserve. And when someone else gets it or they, they don't get what they ask, they grumble at God. They look at him with discontentment. And though I say they, if we truly, church, look into our hearts, many of us approach him in the same way as well. We resent him, church. Because our marriage isn't neat and pretty. We blame him for not listening to us when we don't get the job. We get mad at God when family members pass away or when we get sick, when our children are out of, are out of control or when we struggle with sin. We feel as though our service to God is deserving of this perfect life. We create rules and standards for God to follow. And then when he doesn't measure up to what we expect, we call him unjust. We forget all that God has already blessed us with. And we also forget how much we have truly sinned against him. We forget how undeserving we are of being invited into his presence and his kingdom. We forget about how our God left heaven subjecting himself, church, to our flesh, dying in our place that he would invite us in. And we look on that, that same God with discontentment. We call him unjust. This is what our way leads to church, our self-righteous way of entitlement. But look at how the master responds to one of the young men in this group, church. He doesn't overreact or treat them shrewdly. He simply points out to them the truth. 
He begins in verse 13 by addressing one of the workers as friend. And he encounters their claim of injustice by posing a series of questions in order that he might search his own heart. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? He first reminds them of their agreement. In fact, he gave them exactly what they haggled him for. They came with expectations of what they deserve, and he gave them exactly what they wanted. Therefore, there's, there's no injustice here. He's kept his word. He also points out the fact that everything belongs to him. Therefore, he is allowed to give whatever he wants to whoever he wants, however he wants, meaning what he gives to the next person has, has nothing to do with them. And lastly, the truth of the matter is that he didn't have to invite them into his vineyard at all. He doesn't need you, church. But because he loves us and because he is good and generous, he invites us in. It's not because of what we have earned or what we were fitting to receive, but only because he is good. Jesus wants us to know, church, that our invitation into his kingdom has nothing to do with our goodness or righteousness, but only his. There was nothing you could give up, church, or, or do that would earn your right into his kingdom family. Even our willingness to follow him and give up these things is because of his grace. And his grace alone. It has never been based on merit. It's not based on your, your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status. It's not based on your moral worthiness or your keeping of the rules and the laws, but only his grace. Yeah. In the moment you believe that it is about you and your works, you leave yourself on rocky ground, church. In fact, this is the very thing that happens to Israel. After watching God defeat large armies on, on their behalf, after he delivered them, they took on this feeling of entitlement. And they began to demand things from him. And they treated God as if he was this sort of genie in a bottle. And when they didn't give what they felt they deserved, they grumbled at him, church. And they resented him. They said we were better off in Egypt. And they accused him of unrighteousness, church. They accused him of bringing them out in the wilderness to die. And instead of entering into the promise, their generation circled for 40 years and eventually died out. And though we have that example for us in God's word, we still fall back into thinking in this way. And Jesus is warning us 
of this way. And he is, he is, he is calling out to us. I have a better way, a kingdom way, where you're not central, but where my father is central where we see the truth about ourselves, where we see, where we realize that we, we all are sinners and are truly more like those in the last hour. Those who are unfit and unworthy of his invitation. Those who because of our sinfulness deserve to get looked over. Those who are desperate and in need of a savior. But instead of looking over us, our great king and master sees us in desperate need of him. And he comes down to us and invites us in church. We must realize that as sinners, this is who we all are. We can't haggle our way into his kingdom, church, but it's only when you realize that you are a desperate sinner in need of a savior that we will truly be willing to give up everything and follow him. It's when we have this type of mindset that understands the greatness and the goodness of his mercy and grace that we will then receive more than we ever expected. Having eyes to truly see how generous and loving church our great God is realizing that not only are we blessed, but we have been abundantly blessed. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 7 through 9, or verse, yeah, 7 through 9, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says it's because of the surpassing worth of truly knowing this great Savior who came down and invited me in that for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and have counted them as rubbish in order, church, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the Righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith, church, that comes by grace and grace alone. Paul realized on his road to Damascus that everything that he had been doing to gain righteousness, church, was worthless. And it was all based on him and his works. Works that are but filthy rags in the sight of God, church. Self-righteous works that not only caused him to count others as less worthy, but works that caused him to take the lives of others. This is what this way leads to. He believed that the taking of another life made him more righteous. Imagine how he felt as he encountered the Lord on that road. Imagine how he felt as he realized that he took the lives of believers for his own selfish gain. 
He had to have seen himself as worthless, a self-loathing murderer. And yet Jesus did not cast him out, but instead invited him in. And Paul in his helplessness, church, immediately follows the Lord. He never demands or expects anything but only sees himself as one in desperate need of being saved. A humble servant deserving of nothing. In fact, church, this is the very thing that he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church, but by grace, of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's when we truly realize how undeserving we are of God's great grace and mercy that we will truly be the most thankful for it. A thankfulness and a, uh, and a gratitude, church, that will drive us to him, realizing how much he truly loves us as we grow to love him in the same way that he has loved us. Willing to give up our lives that we might serve him with everything we have. This is why he said in Matthew 19 verse 29 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying when you truly recognize the surpassing worth of knowing him in his glory, of following him, you will truly be willing to give up everything for him. You will with all humility and contentment be willing to serve him and his kingdom, becoming the least in the kingdom, serving with a great generosity that frees you from the concerns of this world church and allows you to be used for God's great glory, working in his, his vineyard to bring in his great harvest as you share the goodness of his great grace with those in need of a savior. This is the way of his eternal kingdom church. And we all, regardless of worldly status, enter in by the same terms. By the same grace, therefore, let us be reminded every moment, every hour of his great grace, that we might pursue God and his grace, that we might be dependent on him and his mercy, never forgetting the great generosity of our Lord as he invited us into his kingdom and gave us a life that we never deserved. Amen, Amen church. Amen. Let us pray.